This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tim Winton, welcome again to Better Reading. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, you were with us. Well, how many years ago was Shepherd's Heart? Oh, dear, yeah, you caught me out. Um, no idea. No I idea. Know. It was a I few years. Yeah, it's it been was a while. Mm, pre-COVID. Anyway, so for those of you that don't know who Tim is, and really you must have been living under a rock for the last few years, Tim is one of Australia's most beloved and critically acclaimed authors. He has published 29 books for adults and children. He published his first novel in 1982, An Open Swimmer, which won the Australian Vogel Award. Tim has won the Miles Franklin Literary Award four times for Shallows, Cloud Street, Dirt Music and Breath. His novels, The Rider, Dirt Music, have both been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It's really wonderful to have you back here. We're celebrating 40 years of writing. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 40. Yeah, 40. 40. Mm. Wow, right? <laughs> yeah, you get, you get less for murder. Yeah, you do. You do. I don't know whether we spoke about this last time, but my favourite's got to be, my all-time favourite of yours is The Rider. I love that book. I, I feel that sometimes, and, and you'll have an opinion about this, sometimes it's when in your lifetime that you read it, when you read a piece of fiction and it resonates for so long and it's for the moment. Yeah, I, I think we are affected by books in different ways at different times of of our yeah. lives and I think that, you know, there are, there are books that felt um, really important when you're younger and you go back and read them and you you wonder what the fuss was about or you remember mm. what the fuss was about depending on, you know, how you've travelled and how the book itself has travelled. Um, and there are books that seem impenetrable or sort of slightly just they, they don't they don't meet you anywhere at a certain point when you when you're younger and then later in life you go back and you uh you realize that you just needed to be a bit more of a grown up before you before you could meet that book halfway mm. uh, my mother died recently and um she was in a nursing home in the, in her last days and i happened to have chloe hooper's bedtime story it was in my bag. And, you know, I'd had it. It was a proof copy and I'd had it for some months. But for some reason I picked it up at that time and it just spoke to me in that moment. And it will always have that association, won't it? Yeah, I mean, look, there are, you know, there are books that I that I have olfactory uh, responses to, things that I can, you know, taste mm. and smell from, from that period and the experience of, you know, I was associated reading... Um, Patrick White with being up a tree because I I um I studied White in university and um, I had to read the whole you know the whole backlist um, so I, I went south for a few weeks and camped and just surfed and and read Patrick White and the best place I, I found an old iron bed frame and stuck it up in a tree and um, 
So, yeah, I, I, you know, riders in the chariot and Voss, I was associated with being up a up in a salmon gum. Uh, with yeah. Me. Yeah, yeah. Another story, uh, talking about the meaning of story, I guess, to people, for me, when I uh, can't make sense of the world, when things are hard, when things aren't going well, I try to draw on the stories that I remember and the stories that impacted me. And during that same week where I was reading Chloe Hooper's Bedtime Story, I remembered a story that you wrote, and I think it was for the Sydney Morning Herald. You'll remember it better than me. And it was about your mum and taking your mum out for a swim. Mm, yeah. Yeah, my mother, my mother, uh you know, was a great swimmer and she she loved, well, she's still alive. She 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 loves the water and she she was a swimming teacher. Uh, in her late in her late years, she's just no longer able physically able to to swim. And um we figured out a way of taking her for a swim. We had to, you know, put her in a in a plastic chair that I uh, that I found and we we were swimming her through the the warm shallows at, at Ningaloo Reef. Yeah, it was a. It was just one of those. It was a weird moment because I've written I've written scenes like that. In fact, I think it, it was a scene in a little book called Blueback, where um, the boy who's who's grown up sort of in his mother's shadow. She's his rock, really. Um, you know, and he, he takes her to the water in in her last days. So it was really very strange to be. Um, you live long enough and you write enough and you realise that you've you've written scenes in your life that you haven't yet inhabited and in, enacted. And so it's a very strange thing to feel those kinds of echoes from your own work. And I, I can't tell if part of being a writer is imagining all the things that are going to happen to you as much as trying to process the things that have already happened to you. Do you think that's a good point? I want to talk about writing and ageing because we are celebrating 40 years of writing, but we as readers grow. We grow with writers. And I'm wondering, of course, the writer grows. Like I I have, I'm a voracious reader of Marquez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right, and read, you know, read every book, read every short story, read every everything that he'd ever written. But one of his last stories before he died was, um, it was a novella, I think, and it was about an old man falling in love with a virgin. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And it made me think, yeah, I've forgotten the name too, but it made me think about the ageing process of the writer, which as a reader we we tend not to think about because I guess we accept the stories as face value. Is that right? What do you think? Well, we should, I suppose. I mean, the, the story is an artefact. It is itself and it's, and I suppose we shouldn't be reading it through the, well, we shouldn't, you know, shouldn't depend on some kind of concept of the author that we have in our mind when we read it because it's, it's its own thing. And to some degree it is, it, you know, it ex- exists independently of the writer and and hopefully it'll last longer than the writer you know mm. if it's any good the writer will be dead and people will still be reading it in mm. whatever in whatever form um people are reading whenever that happens but it's in a way it's sort of inevitable and and, and look one of the cultural facts i suppose is that in order for people to find out about books authors have to present themselves as public figures, which is kind of troublesome and mm. kind of wrong in so many levels, but, you know, it's as old as 
we've been doing it for centuries, um, <laughs> one way or another. Uh, but it just means that you do somehow associate, and sometimes that has really problematic. Uh, you know, sometimes people are, re- are reading fiction, in particular, as if it's some kind of revelation about the the life of the of the mm-hmm. author. And you know, while it's fair to say that many books, you know, do consciously or unconsciously reveal things uh, about the author, a lot of the time they've got nothing to do with the author's life or even their experience. Sometimes they're just the sum total of the writer's research mm. or they're the capacity of their imagination. Um, mm. Mm. But, you, you you know, if you read someone long enough, you do get a sense of the shape of somebody's mm. imagination and that's obviously going to be telling you something about about the writer or your perceptions of their imagination. You know, mm. so many things about about my books, people with, you know, amazing amount of certainty that they've that they've figured out this and that about this character and that and, and it's all completely wrong, you know. But <laughs> what are you going to do? Exactly, because in a way, I think Charlotte Wood said this to me recently. In a way, she said when she finishes a book uh, and it's published, she hands it over to the reader and she feels that she doesn't own it anymore. The reader owns it. Do you feel yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You own the you own the royalties. Sure. More of a legal arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that's the reason you don't go back and read them. I mean, I, I I wouldn't go back and read one of my books unless I was paid for it. You know, mm. you know whether it's me reading it out loud to strangers at a public gathering or doing an audio recording or whatever it is. But um, yeah, once you once you're done, you it's it's over. You're on to some yeah. something else. You know, I mean, there are certain experiences in life that you like to repeat almost endlessly. You know, and that probably explains why we have children and you know, have sex and, and, and certain kinds of forms of re- repetitive recreation, you know. I mean, I'm a surfer. It's just one wave after another, you know. Yeah. I've been doing yeah. that longer than I've been writing books and um, it's strange. But, you know, the, the book itself, it's not a rep- every book is a con- completely different experience and you discover, you realise as a, a young writer starting out that, um, that, you know, when you finished your first book, it doesn't put anything in the bank in terms of, the next book. You just got to start again from scratch. And the experience of having written a book doesn't help you out at all. You know, there are each of them is its own problem. Or, you know, that's that's my my glass half empty version, but I suppose each of them is a unique opportunity if you wanted to be slightly more um, optimistic and cheery. I want to talk to you a little bit about gender. For some reason, in the last couple of months, I've been hammered uh, personally, you know, and my business um, about me favouring female authors. And, yeah, I've been hammered actually. Lots of very, very nasty emails coming through. And, you know, when I received the first one, it was such a shock to me because I didn't think ever that I picked up a book based on gender. Uh, it just, it, it obviously was an unconscious thing. I was mm. really surprised when I read that email. Mm. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that I was doing that. Now, and the reason why I'm telling you this is that gender doesn't specifically gender the story. And when I I thought about you, when I got this first e- first email, and I thought you as a writer have always written about strong women and the men in your, particularly in your fiction, have always been troubled or slightly confused or finding their way. 
and in a way have come to where they want to come through the women characters. Would that be right? So there's two questions there. There's gender. And when you pick up a book, do you think about that? And two, gender in fiction. Yeah, I think your observation about my characters is is accurate. Yeah, the most of the most of the women most of the characters, you know, the strong, driven, resilient characters are the women, and and the men are kind of lost and hapless. And in a way, I think that just reflects my experience and my my childhood and and my observations, I, I suppose. I grew up around um, very distinctive and and strong women. And while you know, um, while uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the white working class, and there's no question that the culture that I grew up in was patriarchal, and you know, and misogyny was everywhere. But I also, well, I, you know, I lived a life, a childhood where, along with a lot of men who were brutes, there were also men who were mm-hmm. tender and gentle so you know it wasn't life's not a cartoon that that that, um neatly presents an ideological picture um it's it's a bit it's a bit messy and counterintuitive um in many ways but yeah look I, i yeah i think that's that's true i um and i was i was always interested to be able to write out of the out of kind of awe and admiration for um you know for women and and just being amused by the way that, as you say, the the men sort of followed along like a you know a little dog chasing a brass band. <laughs> you described it better than I did for sure. <laughs> um, what about in your reading? Do you, when you pick up a book, do you think about gender? Uh, I, I I wonder. I, um, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just I just like books. Um, you know, yeah, I, I like a story. Look, there are there are probably there are probably when I think about it, then some stuff that I might respond to more automatically, and that might be gendered as the word. I mean, I can't stand these. You know, gendered mm. impacted these kind of. Um, uh, but yeah, look, I, I, I wonder. I um, my favorite writer when I was a a young man, you know, full of piss and vinegar was Flannery O'Connor, you know, and mm. I didn't know if she was a man or a woman because Flannery, what sort of name is that? Yeah, exactly. Like, Americans, <laughs> Americans have these uh, really complicated, strange, uh, opaque uh, names. Everyone has a surname for a, for a first name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or at least three of them. Um, they do. Um, so, look, I, um, yeah, look, I, don't, yeah. I don't really know. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that, like anybody, I would be open to, you know, unconscious gender bias in terms of, you know, in the same way that, you know, I'm more likely to be interested in a book that's regional and outdoors rather than indoors. You know, novels of manners aren't automatically my thing. But but having said that, you know, there are novels of manners and very indoor uh, domestic books that I love, so so go figure. And also, you know, I don't read to read things that are familiar to me. Mm. You know, I mean, the whole ma- the magic of books and, and art and music is to be taken to the unfamiliar, to be tr- transported somewhere new and fresh, Whether you know, and you know, as a reader, you want to feel what it's like to be someone in another time, in another culture, of another gender, 
with a different suite of problems. That's what fiction takes us to. Mm. I mean, nonfiction, obviously, as well. Um, in which case, that's about information. It's, we don't. I don't read novels for information. It's not. I'm not there for the data. Mm. And and I'm on also not there to feel all the dot points of some orthodoxy being ticked off. I'm there for the magic. I'm there for the the unexpected. Um, mm. I'm there to be messed up, you mm. know, um, to be upset and enchanted and um, distracted. Uh, I'm yeah, there to be yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, all of that. I mean, it's otherwise art, art doesn't need a purpose. It doesn't need it doesn't need a practical instrumental value. It's um, and I've said this a lot of times before, but you know, yeah, here I am, forty years, and I've been in the business of useless beauty all that mm-hmm. time, and I don't feel bad about that. I, I, I don't think that art has to somehow have an excuse to exist. And um, you know, I can't even imagine what a life without useless beauty would look like. But I think it would be a dystopia. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That just reminds me, when I was with my mother in those last days and your reference to art, it's the power of the book is so portable that even in such an uncomfortable environment I could find solace in a book mm. and find beauty and I read a lot of the passages out loud, not that she could hear me, but mm. th- there's a portability and a beauty about that, isn't there? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I think solace is... Um... It's something that we, you know, we sort of undersell in terms of what what books. And I'm going back to my mum briefly. Um, you know, mum, mum had a pretty tough childhood. She was in a, you know, um, rather dysfunctional home. And for her, books were an escape. She it was somewhere safe and beautiful to go to when things were jagged and ugly um, around her. And I think that resource, um, that other world that you could step into in terms of being a reader. That was, I think she made us readers uh, uh, as kids, you know, with books, you know, she was passionate about them because of what they, the comfort that they'd given her. And, uh, yeah, I think we forget. And, and you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, my parents and um, my dad turns 91 tomorrow. um, Oh, wow. (laughs) And he's had this experience of reading to people on their deathbed he should have got, you know, he should have got into the doula business. Um, yeah. <laughs> my dad, the death doula. Um, 
But you know, <laughs> but what a way to go, right? Holding someone's hand and reading to them. Um, <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, he says, I don't know if they can hear anyway, but um, uh, yeah, look, I, I think it's yeah, there's comfort, and some of it's about human connection, and some of it's just about the music of language, and and that's in, you know, obviously, I'm a I'm a tradesman. You know, the the language is the main game for me. I mean, story is very important, but it's the it's the it's the beauty of of language. If it's if it's not beautiful, what's the point? You know, mm. I could be I could be a journalist otherwise. Mm. Mm. I want to go back to where it all began and to when you won the Vogel Prize. Did you did you then, in your wildest dream, ever imagine the body of work? What did you think you were going to be then? Well, I don't I don't know. I I, I always had that strange, presumptuous apprehension that I was a writer before I published anything, and while I was writing, and while I was beginning to publish. So at one level, um, this is this is embarrassing to admit. At one level, I was unsurprised um, to be published. Um, mm-hmm. I was obviously surprised to win a prize, and but I um, I didn't have any. I I, I knew I would write books. Uh, I hoped that I would be able to write, keep writing books, and I hoped that I'd get paid for it and wouldn't have to get a proper job. And in that, I've been. You know, it's, that's, that was my only ambition in life was not to be gainfully employed. So that turned out all right. Yeah, um, it did. But I, I, no, I couldn't. Ima- I couldn't imagine that there'd be a, a lot of books and and a kind of a variety of. So there I was, you know, ten years old or whatever, thinking that I was going to be a writer. I di- I'd never met a writer. I didn't know what a writer did. I didn't know what a writer's life was like. And it's not the way they show it in the movies. And so I, I, I went about it the same way that I saw. Um, the people in my life going about their lives. I just was, I just was a tradesperson, and mm. um, I, I took my trade seriously. I had a certain pride in my the skills that you'd learnt. Tried to, you know, maintain a level of humility about the skills that I didn't have and that I might be able to pick up. And that's how it went. Oh, yeah, there were no examples. There was nothing. There was nothing I could, nothing and no one I, I could look to. I did it at a, you know, I did it. At a remove. I mean, I was living in yeah. an isolated place. I was, in, you know, yeah. you know, wrong, wrong side of the wrong country and the wrong hemisphere. Mm. Um, Do you remember then, what yeah. you were reading when you were ten? When I was ten, yeah, it would have been Robert Louis Stevenson, and you know, all the, all, all those, you know, I mean, he's probably the best of all those dusty old nineteenth um, and early twentieth century writers. He's the person that I'll go back to and 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 think. Yeah, I was right then, and I'm right now. This mm. this mm. man could this man could seriously write. I started with Treasure Island, so it was him and tw- and Twain. I graduated to, to to Twain, and you know, like everyone else, started with Tom Sawyer, and then found Huckleberry Finn, and that was what unlocked the the vernacular for me. I I realised that you could write in your own voice, and you could have your people speak in their voices about their places in their you know in their ordinary faces and their ordinary clothes and their ordinary voices and you didn't have to you didn't have to pretend because I did get a really strong sense in the 1960s when I was a child that a lot of Australian writing um, and broadcasting and and film you know was cringing um, well it was trying to be English wasn't it trying to be British yeah I, I do I was lucky to come of age during a period of a really 
vibrant period of renewed confidence, cultural confidence in Australia. I mean, I, I, I went to university purely because of Gough Whitlam. Um, mm. You know, so it was in the days when Labor governments were unafraid to be democratic socialists. And, and also... And to the pond. Yeah, and particularly Gough, also unafraid to be Australian. It, hmm. And that's what you're saying. He was yeah. really not pretending to be British. No, even though even though he was posh and educated, you know, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I never met anybody like Gough Whitlam in my life, and no, 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 no one who sounded like him in the sense of his strange intermediate accent, but also someone who was erudite and not embarrassed about being smart, not mm. embarrassed about loving the arts. He yeah, was not, well, in, yeah. Yeah. So look, I um, I think when I look back over forty years, love my work or hate it, the way the, the chief way that I can account for it is that it's a you know it's an expression of the culture mm. that you know I, I was let loose on the world because of a certain cultural moment where we started doing stuff in our own right unashamedly. I was publishing internationally almost from the beginning and was conscious that I was a bit too Australian, a bit too this, a bit too that. And I just thought, bugger it, I don't care. Like mm. it or lump it. And and there was a lot of pressure to to come to heal. There was a lot of pressure to adapt and soften and to, to, to become a tame version of yourself. And in a way, in a certain way, I would have prospered in a much bigger way if I had taken the king's shilling as, uh, as, I, as I used to think of it. But in the end, you hold your ground long enough, the ground becomes something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you alluding to the fact that I guess in the editorial process there was pressure to change some of the Australian accents, for instance, or yeah, um, lots, of, lots of words, lots of lots yeah. of settings. You know, what is this? Um, you know, what does this mm. word mean? You know, so you know, in in the UK and in um, in the states, if I wasn't going to change words, then they wanted glossaries. You know, wow, um, yeah. And I just, I just refused. Um, mm. and, and it's funny, you know, because it didn't happen the other way. I mean, we. No, were that reading. was my yeah. That was totally my point. I said, look, mm. I've been reading, I've been mm. write, reading, you know, writers of the deep south since I was a teenager. No one, no one threw me a bone there, and mm. I benefited from it. You know, I didn't want to be, you know, spoon fed. I, I wanted to be a reader, not a, not a, an infant. So I think that was the sense of you know writing into it into an imperium, you know, this dispensation of Northern Hemispheric superiority, you know. I mean, it gave me the shits. <laughs> <laughs> Quite frankly. <laughs> um, and, and, and I just I couldn't believe it. I just, I just yeah. thought, you know, we're, we're good enough, you know. And um, I have to say that, um, you know, there was that, and, you know, in all the films that were coming out at the time and um, of the, you know, the Australian New Wave films and the, and, the, and the music. And I have to say that I expected that confidence to to grow and last, but I, if I'm honest, I don't think it has. I think there's a kind of a, partly it's kind of the globalisation and the, and, the, and the kind of the monopolization of platforms, I think um, there's an enormous amount of pressure for people to um, to write and speak and think in a much more standardised way because mm. of, you know, streaming platforms and, 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 and the internet. And there's a kind of a, there's been a flattening out. And I think um, also, I think a lot of people are at the mercy of their own ambitions. So they, mm. 
they will come to heal. Some people will seem to come to heal faster in a way that breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah, I guess it depends on genre. Like, you know, maybe if you're writing crime, it doesn't matter all that much. But if you're writing what you're writing, where the landscape and the culture and the characters are quintessentially who they are, that's very hard to change, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's hard to change without feeling like uh, a collaborator. You know, well, and that uh, you've changed the story in a way because, yeah. Just, yeah. 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 You just feel yeah. like you're, you're, you're betraying your characters and you're betraying your culture. Mm. You, know, and, you know, country and culture and family, that stuff is strong. That's the, that's the, that's the bedrock. Um, mm. And, you know, how do you, how do you betray your culture and sleep straight in your bed at night? Well, and also, too, I think readers are really astute. You know, if you do that, then you lose the authentic story. You lose the flavour of, of, of the story. A lot of your books have been made into movies and TV adaptations and all sorts of things. Have you always felt comfortable with that? Have you been happy with what's been released? What's your relationship with being, I guess, with those mediums of your stories? Look, once I, as I said before, once you once you're done with the book, you're done. Mm. That's and if everything in it is my fault um, and mm. my credit. You know, um, mm. good and bad. It's there. It is. That's it's done. It's, and it's not it's not changing after that. So it, anything else that comes from it is a kind of a relative of that, but it's not the thing itself. You know, it's a, again to come back to family. You know. It's, there's a kind of a difference that you have, you know, with a, a third cousin, you know, mm. or someone that, you know, can find you in the phone book, you know, and, and claim um, some family connection. That's how I feel about, you know, whether it's an opera or a film or a television adaptation. It feels like it has a familial connection, but it's not, it's not that your fifth cousins don't matter, but they don't matter <laughs> as much to you as your children or your <laughs> I love that analogy. Or your life partner or your mum, you know. I love that. Um, That's fantastic. So, look, you know, so I I try to, as I would with a cousin, I try to try to maintain a fond um, regard, but it it doesn't matter if they disappoint me, you know. Mm. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm also getting paid, you know, so, you know, and... And you know, if it's a really bad film and you're getting paid a lot, it's it's a remarkable how consoling. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I've never, I've, I've never really, but I've loved some films and adaptations better than others. Sometimes I see lost opportunities. Sometimes I see the draft, you know, that of the film that I wrote that didn't make it into the production. You know. Sometimes I have no connection at all. I, I, I don't. Um, I don't take part at all. And for many years, I never took any part. And I think that was smart. I just didn't have time. I was too busy writing uh, other mm. books. Why would I? Yeah. Why would I go dancing around the maypole with a with a story that I would spent years on and moved off from? You know. Yeah, and also too, I think it's another skill set when you're telling stories through other mediums. So we've got twenty nine books all up, beautifully rejacketed. Um, and what have we got a target here? <laughs> Are you thinking I've still got another thirty in me? I mean, look, it's um, you never know if you've got another one in you. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I don't have a, I don't have a target. I feel like I don't have anything to prove, and I don't have any ambitions. I, I feel like I fulfilled my ambitions as a young person. You know, I'm in the kind of privileged position of having done what I wanted 
to, and love to do. Um, most people, I'm very conscious of the fact that a lot of people have to, you know, work in jobs that they don't particularly enjoy with people that they don't particularly like or respect um, to make enough money so that they, you know, for four weeks of the year, they get to do what they want to do, you know, for 40 something years now. Um, I've been able to do something that I love and and other people will call it a career. It's just um, it's just been the life that I've lived. I, man- I managed to ply my trade and, um, some, you know, the culture and, and, allowed me to do it. Yeah, and the influence you've had on, on readers and our lives and really the influence you've had as Australia, in the perception of, of Australia through many, many eyes, I think. Um, it's It's been a kind of a cultural comment on who we are. Now, listen, Tim, we're out of time. I can't thank you enough. Congratulations. And I hope to be talking to you when your next book is out. Oh, well, thank you, Cheryl. That's, uh, yeah, well, maybe, there'll, maybe one day there'll be another one. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.